Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm here as usual with Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good. I feel revved up and excited about our guest and our topic. Very much the same. I've been looking forward to this one for a while, and we're talking today with Dr. Caroline Leaf. Dr. Leaf is a clinical and cognitive neuroscientist who has been researching the mind-brain connection, the nature of mental health, and the formation of memory for over 40 years. She's authored an incredible number of books, including Switch on Your Brain, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, and her newest book, How to Help Your Child Clean Up Their Mental Mess. And she's also the host of the top mental health podcast by the same name, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. So Dr. Leaf, thanks for doing this with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing so well. Thank you so much. So one of the things that I appreciate about your work is that you very much focus on giving people a lot of practical tools, tools that can help us really feel like we can influence how we think and feel rather than being a prisoner to it. And to set up what we're going to talk about today, let's start with your primary conceptual framework, which is called the neurocycle. So what's the neurocycle for people who might not be familiar with it? Absolutely. I've been in the field 38 years now, and when I was trained, we were trained that the brain couldn't change. I mean, that was back in the 80s. That's when I did some of the first neuroplasticity research back in the late 80s, thinking, hey, this can't be the case. We're constantly having new experiences, and the mind uses the brain, so therefore the brain must change. And so I showed that with my research with traumatic brain injury. And in the process of of my training and of doing the research, I was very disillusioned by the kind of techniques or systems that we were basically trained in to help our patients clinically, especially with the sort of more neurological things like traumatic brain injury and dementias and so on. So I thought, I need to find something else. I need to understand more about the mind-brain-body connection. So I entered into the world of psychoneurobiology. In desperation for my patients, I decided I needed a new way of looking at the whole mind-brain-body connection. So I started trying to understand and do research in understanding what is memory, how does memory cluster together to form a thought, how does the mind process our experiences into a cluster of memories that form a thought. And then probably the most important thing, once I understood that process, and obviously I'm still learning that process, I wanted to know, can we reverse engineer and be empowered to change things? that will give us a sense of peace and improve our mental health and improve our, our learning skills and development and all that kind of stuff. So the neurocycle is basically the system that came out of all this research and all this clinical application. Each, it's, it's a five-step process with a preparation phase, and it's pretty much like flying a plane. The neurocycle, all the checklists with the engineer and all that stuff is your brain preparation, where we need to get our neurophysiology and our mind-brain-body alignment in place. And that would incorporate things like the normal stuff that we all talk about, meditation and breathing and you know, and mindfulness and all those great things. Then, But that's not enough. What the research has shown is if you just meditate, if you're just mindful, if you just do the breathing, sure, it will calm down your neurophysiology, but it will also activate things inside of you. You'll activate from the non-conscious level, you'll bring into the conscious level these potential issues, intrusive thoughts. And if we don't do something with those, will crash. So I wanted to find out, okay, how can we do the brain preparation, but go beyond mindfulness? So that takes you to your five steps, right? That takes you to the five steps. Exactly. So the five steps are the taking off the plane, flying the plane and landing the plane. So the taking off of the plane would be step one, gather awareness. So gathering, the words gather was very specifically chosen. If you think of going into an apple orchard or something, you don't just randomly pick any apple, you gather, you choose, you select. So it's very 
more piston selective versus just standing under an apple tree and shaking and letting everything fall on your head. So gather awareness is distinct from just general awareness. So then the next thing is once you've gathered awareness, and I'll go into the specifics, I'll just go from big picture and then we can dive into a little bit more detail. Then you need to reflect on what you've gathered. And reflection is very focused. It's like light through a prism. So reflection starts taking you into a level of depth that develops insight and that starts looking deep inside and connects the conscious with the non-conscious. And then you want, when you've got to the point where you've done this very focused gathering and very focused reflection, we need to write things down. So then the third step of the neurocycle is called the right step. And what it's doing is it's taking advantage of the fact that we need to genetically write in our brain. We need to also write. So when we write things down, we're actually capturing all this data that we've gathered awareness of and reflected on. But when you write it down, you bring order out of chaos. You go to a different level of insight and you start bringing things up that you didn't even know were there. So we now have all this information that we need to make sense of. So the fourth step is to recheck. And that's where you go and look at for patterns and triggers. And this is what's happened now. What shall I do about it? How can I look at this through a different lens, et cetera, et cetera. And then you would end that cycle with an action. And this is exactly what the brain is doing. It's going through all these five steps. An action I call the act of reach. And that's not necessarily a physical action. It could be just a positive affirmation. Do you call it reconstruct? That's your fifth step? Uh, No, no. Act of reach. Act of reach. So it's gather awareness, reflect, write. Yep recheck and then active reach. So the active reach is you come to a level in in the first four steps will take you to a point where you've now got to a level of understanding. You can't solve everything in one neurocycle. And generally it's done in a 15 to 45 minute period. You can even do it in under a minute. But it takes you to a point where you need to get some level of conclusion. So that's just, okay, well, I've learned this today. I'll carry on with this tomorrow. This is what I believe today. I am valuable or I can do this or this is why I'm showing up. It'll be some sort of a statement. And then it's always a good idea to hang that statement onto something visual like maybe imagine a rose or a rainbow. And it just keeps you, as you go through the course of the day, having an active reach is a way of re-anchoring you back in the moment of what you're working towards as opposed to getting stuck. Right. How are you going to be from here? How are you going to be from here? Exactly. Yeah. Can I say it back to you to make sure I got it? And I think um, initially, so I'm going, to, I'm going to do an example. I'll spare you the gory details because otherwise we're going to get a thousand letters worried about me. So I have an aging (laughs) shoulder. Uh, I've been working on it. I've had some really good top, top care. I just had an MRI. And the finding of the MRI seems like a bit of an oddball because it's a little inconsistent with other findings. And it may mean I need some new physical therapy for my shoulder or whatever. Okay, great. That's my issue. So I'm gathering my awareness initially about that issue. And I'm kind of tuning in to the various feelings I'm having about it. I'm just kind of opening up the space for it. All right. Before you do that, I want to give you a little bit of guidance. So as you gather awareness, be very specific. You need to focus on four categories. So you need to focus on the four categories that are giving you information. And that is your feelings, your behaviors, your feelings relate and your what it feels like in your body. So the bodily sensation and then the perspective. Okay, so my emotions, my actions, my sensations, and my cognitions, my perspectives. So the emotions, behaviors would be what you say, what you do, yep. how you say, how you do it, your, and then your bodily sensation, whatever, whatever it's like yeah. showing up in your body, and then perspective, outlook, attitude. Okay, the whole mess, as you put it. I love your phrase, you know, cleaning up the mental mess. So I'm laying the mess on the table, and then I start reflecting on it. 
what's underneath it all? Why do I feel this way? What are the aspects of wondering if my care providers have messed up? You know, why did I spend so much money on those treatments? Did they not fix me? Do I really trust the neuro- you know, the radiologist who read the recent MRI? You know, I'm going to age, like blah, blah, blah. You know, so I'm, now I'm reflecting on all this stuff and reflecting on whether I've been a good patient. I've been an amazing patient, by the way. I get an A plus for being a good patient. But anyway, uh, you know, no need for self-criticism there. Okay, and then I write it down. Now, I'm not going to do it right now. So I'm, I kind of write, and I find that's very interesting. So I'm writing, maybe I'm keyboarding, maybe I'm writing, maybe you would bring in some people who are, they do little, do little doodles, imagery, little pictures. Great. I'm writing it out. And as I'm writing it on paper, my brain is writing it in its own way. So you're tracking that parallel process, right? Yes, pretty much. And then the fourth step, how do you term that again? What's your headline phrase for the fourth step? It's called the recheck. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to take a fresh look, like from with beginner's mind, with a fresh perspective. So I've Put that mess on the page, and you emphasize writing freely, not being overly analytic, which is awesome. Get it on the page, and I look at it, and you know, I start bringing some fresh perspective to it. I step back from some of this crud I just spewed. You know, I go, ah, it's not so true, or ah, it's kind of exaggerated, or I start to realize a running theme. I like your emphasis on that. Like, huh, the running theme here. Like, I grew up in a fault-finding home. I hate making mistakes. I want to make sure I haven't made a mistake. So I've been working on that in my life. You know, I like being more relaxed. You know, the third Zen patriarch said, enlightenment is no anxiety about imperfection. That's a profound statement. And then I get into the fifth step, active reach, which I really like. You're reaching into what you're doing. You're drawing in those motor systems for a executive function that the brain has evolved. Great. We're reaching uh, how we want to be and kind of orienting into how I want to be about it and feeling our way into it. What would it feel like to, to be this new way, right? To, or this wiser mm-hmm. way or this more consolidated or stabilized, integrated, integrated way, right? I feel better already about my stupid shoulder, you know? Thank you, Dr. <laughs> Leaf. <laughs> This is a quality 10 minutes. It was good. <laughs> That's right. Okay, that was good. Yeah, that was great. It was fantastic. And it is, it's a, you know, you can use this in the way you've just done. You can be in a meeting and someone's, you know, really upsetting you and you can keep a deadpan expression on your face. You can run through it in your mind. Obviously, you know, you can notepad and pretend you're making notes in the meeting or you can the third step you can also visualize as though you are taking a video with your phone you know that is you like watching yourself in a movie because sometimes it's it's so quick that you have to respond like in a situation yeah. where you you really feel, feel yourself you're going to explode you're going to react say the wrong thing you can do a neurocycle to calm you down you can do a neurocycle in order to change a a habit a pattern of behavior oh. or a pattern i don't even like to say behavior but a pattern that has emerged because of early maybe trauma at some point in your life, whatever stage, something that's happened, something that's now impacting your day-to-day life and your struggles and your relationship, whatever. If something's showing up as a pattern, then you need to spend time daily doing a planned and guided, so the neuropsychics are planned and guided 
directed neuroplasticity system. So you do it daily, but you do it daily for at least 63 days. So three sites, 21, because I've done a lot of work on habit formation and that there's a lot of things out there about how long does it actually take to form a habit? What is a habit? What are the components of habit? We've got a massive study running at the moment. But like what we've seen from our research and our team is that you, you can't change something in one day a lot of people think 21 days, as we know that that's just a myth from a surgeon back in the 60s talking about physical healing of his patients with surgery and then adapted to the mind. So what we see is if you really want to change and get to a point of having a sense of peace because you can't change what's happened to you, but you can change what's inside of you and therefore how it plays out into your future. But that will not happen in less than at least six, somewhere in, in the region of 60 to 66 days. And then if it's more complex, multiple cycles. Because generally, if there's a trauma, there's a linked thought experience becoming a thought network, a network looking like a tree. The longer the period of abuse and the more extensive, the more thought trees there are. Now, in, in a cycle of 16, more or less 60 to 66 days, you'll unwind a part of that. Because some trees are massive. The, more, the bigger the experience, the bigger the tree, and the more connected trees there are. I'm getting stuck on numbers because this is very significant when it comes to mental health, with your children as well, with anyone is that we're pretty good at naming a feeling. We're pretty good at, you know, sort of finding out the root cause to an extent. And we're pretty good at getting a technique because there's such an availability of great techniques out there to, in a sense, put a band-aid on the wound. We're also very good at, you know, doing a breathing technique or doing some decompression or something to make us feel like, you know, that we can get through the day, we're calmer. The problem is that if you use those things erratically, you won't rewire the psychoneurobiological network. So then the issue persists. And what happens mm. then is we have a situation where you seem to be better for a time, but then you get re-triggered and then the whole cycle starts again. So this has been a huge part of my work is to actually get people into these time routines when it comes to managing your mind. Yeah, one of the things that just strikes me about this method is that it gives people a sense of agency, which is especially healing and compensatory and corrective around issues in which they had little agency, which is an inherent element of trauma is a lack of agency in it. So yeah, it gives people a sense of agency because in the neurocycle, you're so reworking your own perspective about things and being in control about, I assume as well, how deeply you want to go. Maybe there's part of a wisdom. I, I think people become, so people probably, I assume as well, become more skillful with the neurocycle over time. I was fumbling and clumsy when I walked through it my first time here. Uh, you were gentle. Thank you. No, you did you did very well. You know, and that's it is it's a skill that we develop. And it's, you know, someone will say, I don't have 63 days in my life. Yeah, well, yeah. let's put it this way. You you're you are changing whether you like it or not, your brain is changing. Every moment of every day neuroplasticity is being driven by your mind. Your brain is changing regardless. So in 63 days time, if you've never done anything, you're going to be 63 days worse. So, you know, you you still, your brain still changed. So the whole thing was a neurocycle is why don't you direct the change? So the empowerment factor is massive and that is key. So when we, when we decide that, okay, it is going to take time, but at least I'm directing the change, you know, that, that gives people that even an increased level of, of autonomy and, and feeling like the hope and an acceptance of things get bad before they get better. And that's a huge part of the neurocycle sequence because they seen the cause of why they were feeling so overwhelmed by life in the first place. Yeah. So if you've suppressed years of abuse and now you see the years of abuse or you've suppressed something and now you see that cause, you, ha you, you should be feeling depressed and anxious and grieving. It's a process. 
what I think is really interesting is a few of the things you named in that. You talked about agency and you talked about empowerment. And the recent focus of your work is working with kids and younger people of different kinds. And those are emotional experiences, like a sense of agency, a sense of empowerment inside of our lives that can be very challenging for kids to access because they are fundamentally vulnerable. They're little people moving through a very big and complicated world, a very unnatural world these days. If you, I mean that in the literal sense, like a separation from our natural base. And the experiences that we have inside of current modern environments are not necessarily great at giving a young child a sense of agency or empowerment. And so far as we've talked, you've explained the neurocycle in some detail. Uh, we've talked about it a bit technically. You've talked about periods of time going back into it, how long it takes for this to stick. Hey, sometimes it takes up to 60 days or even longer than that if you're working with a complicated target or a difficult target for a person. And I just try to stick myself into the, the mind and body of a seven-year-old kind of yeah. hearing all of that, trying to engage with that idea. And I am underwater, man. So I'm, I'm wondering how you start to engage these ideas when you're talking about them practically working with kids, because I know you have a ton of experience in educational environments, talking to students and teachers about these different ideas. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how you'd like just get into them and start to talk to kids about interacting with their minds in this way. Love your question. And this is, I, I worked, my, a lot of my practice was young kids too. My youngest yeah. patients were two and three years of old age. And I taught this to two and three year olds. So, and obviously I've refined the technique over the years, I have four of my own children, they're adults now, but they grew up with us. So essentially kids, I find honestly, we often underestimate the insight that a child has and the, the level of and that's the first thing. And, the, and there's a lot of research coming out now saying, hey, let's revise our way we you know, look at kids. The other thing is kids are better at reading body language than an adult. And so therefore, they're very intuitive. More intuitive, yeah. They will often, if they, don't, if, if they don't get clarification on what they're reading, they will assume it's something they've done. So authenticity is the third aspect with children is to know they've got insight, they read body language, and they, they really understand authenticity. They can read it when you're not being truthful. Fourth thing is that your stress and anxiety, they're going to experience. The mental health of a child is very dependent on how the adults is managing in their lives. The adults in their lives are managing their mental health. So I've done a lot of work with teachers, for example, as you mentioned. We've just done a very big study over last year in New York so with a whole lot of 350 areas in New York working with helping just teachers. People often ask me what would be the most important thing to get going with mental health. It's to get the adults empowered to be able to manage their mental health. Bearing this in mind, the authenticity, the insight, the body language insight, that kind of thing, we need to model for our kids first. So the first mm. thing is that we model for the children. So if we, like exactly like you just did, Rick, how you modeled for yourself at that little experience, let's say you walk in the door and you've had a bad day and you're really busy and you yell at the kids mm. and you're mm -hmm. very reactive and you're just totally just not yourself and your kids are looking at you and thinking, what have they done? And you know, there you can quickly model a neurocycle. You can just say, I'm so sorry. I'm feeling so frustrated. I really was not nice. I yelled at you, my body language. I was like doing this scary face or whatever. And you, so you just run through, I reflect, I had a really bad day at work. I just feel overwhelmed. Um, you could write that down. What I always recommend to parents is to get a space in your house that you allocate. Like you clean your teeth in the bathroom and you cook on the stove. And that concept of a place that has a designated 
function is great for this concept with children. So if you have a neurocycle area or a brain area, then you can black like, a blank wall. Some of my uh, my sister law actually she did this. She painted a wall of her you know kitchen chalk paint and had a box of chalk and a cute chair. And so just taking that concept that you can have a toy box, you can have toys. We've even created a little character called Brainy. It's throughout the book as a cartoon. What it looks like. So we have the toy as well. <laughs> So Brainy brainy walks your mental health journey with you. And so that becomes when you're dealing with a child, you're giving them something relatable. So if you've got a two-year-old and they you pick them up from daycare and they're throwing a tantrum in the car and they, they, they there's, diff- there's something going on, but they don't have the words to totally yeah. explain. Yeah. You've got your little designated area and these are these things with some other toys and some crayons. But if you've got that designated area that you've demonstrated when you're having a bad day, you go sit in that area and you kind of work through this process they start modeling that. You can just say, oh, I see Brainy's got a sore tummy today and Brainy's kicking the chair and Brainy doesn't want to eat it. You know, you transfer. That's how you get into a child's head of that two and three-year-old. They will pick it up. They'll interact with you. Can I jump in and ask you a question about something, doctor, just really quick here, because I'm curious about this. One of the things that we talk about frequently on the podcast in terms of, um, because we talk about traumatic experiences a lot, and particularly developmental traumatic experiences that people go through. We talk about the impact of early childhood and the way kind of sets the bar for the rest of your life. And one of the things that comes up over and over again as a very, very challenging experience for children is when the child feels like they are responsible for their parents' emotional reactions to things. Mm -hmm. It's a form of parentification, essentially, where the child is being made the person who's responsible for after the parent comes home, the parent screams and shouts because they had a bad day at work. Child goes, oh, it must be my fault. Very naturally, parents saw me, parent got mad, I must be the bad person. So part of what you're doing there when you're doing that kind of modeling where you're investigating your own experience about something is that you're communicating, not even very subtly, or you're communicating very directly that it's not the child's fault for whatever your experience was. And in that, you're teaching that there are all these different reasons that people have complicated emotions, complicated experiences. Oh, yeah. maybe I got mad at this person, but it was really because of that other thing over there or whatever mm-hmm. is going on. So you're just providing like a much more full perspective inside of this. And you're teaching that actively to your kids, which is fantastic. You said that beautifully, Forrest. It really summarized that beautifully. And it's so true. A child will automatically, unless we explain, they will think it's something that they've done. Yeah. So by you modeling, as you said, not only are you giving them a toolbox, but you're also making them feel validated. Oh, it's it's okay to have bad days, but I don't have to stay there. It's mm. I'm not a bad person if I have this confusing emotion or whatever. If you think of how, Rick, maybe the way that we were brought up, because I'm you and I, I'm nearly, I'm 60. I don't know how old you are, but basically the way we were brought up is you don't talk about you know you just if you were throwing a tantrum you were bad whereas this is we're not going to obviously allow a child to throw toys across the shop and that kind of thing but we do understand we can teach the child that you know the way you're showing up isn't who you are so something's making you feel that you need to throw a toy across the shop or kick your brother or something like that and that is invaluable and that I found phenomenal I found and when you when I've worked with parents and in groups and it's, I don't even know how to say this. It's the most phenomenal experience to see how a child will step in with the most incredible level of wisdom. When you're sitting down and you go through that, tent, you've had a tantrum and you scream at the kids and you model out the neuropsych and you just say how you feel, they'll come over. They'll hold your hand. They'll pat you on the head. They'll draw pictures with you. 
and they'll give you wisdom. They'll say, mommy, you need to sit down or daddy, you this. And that creates a deep, meaningful collaboration. The older kids, I've seen children as young as four and five and six give parents advice that the parents have sat back and said, I didn't even think about that. That is what it is. Mm. That's the direction I need to go in. So you're creating an opportunity for deep, meaningful connection. And why that's happening is because we as humans, we all know, you guys know this, is that we are wired for deep, meaningful communication. So in this, the neurocycle is not a new therapy technique. It doesn't replace anything that's out there. You use the meditation, you use the CBT, you use the psychodynamic, whatever you want to do, whatever beautiful wisdom you've already gained as a human. I'll give you a quick example in terms of techniques. People are very into positive affirmations, as we know in this day and age, it's like a real thing. And or your five gratitude statements that you must do before bed. And now both of those aren't bad things. But if you use them just as like a band-aid where you, I'll wake up and do this and now it's going to change my life. It will change in the moment, but it won't be sustainable change. But if you took those gratitude statements, concept, all that affirmation process, and you did the five steps with a brain prep and you stuck it into the last step, the act of reach, then you're going to get the, it's going to be more effective. So to come full circle back to your question, two-year-olds, three-year-olds will relate to this through the demonstration, through the authenticity, through the process. Kids love learning about the brain. That's why we made brainy. So you start by teaching children that what we experience grows in our brain as trees. You don't have to worry about all the science of the mind and the body and all that stuff at this point unless they're more interested in that. But they understand that that was a, a bully. Someone bullied me at school. That that was not a nice tree. The point is that don't try and do this in one shot. You already both mentioned that. This is a lifestyle that you build into your framework of life. and you're dealing with stuff all the time. So here's a tool for dealing with it. So your two-year-old can relate, your three-year-old can relate. I give you the languaging. I give you the, the lots of practical ideas, like cutting pictures and putting them in a box so they can choose a picture to show their feeling. So they don't have to say, I am feeling frustrated. A two-year-old doesn't know how to do that. But they can show you a picture of it. Of mm. If you've got box of pictures of the four different categories, that you've cut out together as just a fun action, they can go open the box and they can dig around and find that picture, they, can, they don't have to say a word. They can just show you mm. the picture. And that's maybe a child kicking a toy. Oh, are you mad? Are you sad? Are you frustrated? Are you cross? So you can then paraphrase. So you've built connection. We'll be right back to the show in just a minute. But first, a word from this week's sponsors. Terms like the microbiome have gone mainstream. And it's great that there's more awareness about the importance of gut health and how we can support it by taking a good probiotic. Not all probiotics are created equal, and that's why I'm happy to be partnering with Seed. Seed is proud to be backed by science. Lots of science. They collaborated with leading scientists to create their DS01 Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic that includes a proprietary formula of 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains. I take DSO-1 daily in the morning, and as a guy who has taken a lot of probiotics in his life, one of the things I really appreciated about it is it doesn't have that weird probiotic taste. Trust your gut with Seed's DS-01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash beingwell and use code 25beingwell to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash beingwell, code 25beingwell. 
Work often means hours a day sitting in a chair, and research has suggested that prolonged sitting poses all kinds of health risks. One of the best purchases I've made over the last few years is getting a standing desk. It's absolutely transformed my workday, I totally love it, and I got mine from Uplift Desk. So when Uplift reached out recently to sponsor the podcast, I was totally thrilled. If you'd like to try one out, visit upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. It's really a great product. I use the V2 two-leg configuration for my desk. That's where I work every day and record the podcast from, but they have so many different options for people. Over a million customers have chosen Uplift Desk for their innovative product designs, free 30-day returns, which includes free return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Their pricing is also really competitive, and if you're trying to save some money, you can just buy the legs alone. Go to upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. That's up, L-I-F-T, desk.com slash beingwell. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. I'm always looking for ways to get more protein, and particularly more healthy protein, into my diet. And IQ Bar has been a really good fit for me. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text being well to 64,000. One of the reasons that the bars have been so great for me is because they're entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, and artificial sweeteners. And you can refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ bars, four IQ mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now, our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ bar products, plus you can get free shipping as well. To get your 20% off, just text BEINGWELL to 64000. Get your discount. Text BEINGWELL to 64000. That's B-E-I-N-G-W-E-L-L to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash being well. I guess I'm thinking about two kinds of sort of outputs, if you will, in the uh, active reaching step. I mean, sometimes what you realize when you do that, whether you're a kid, a a four-year-old or a 40-year-old, is you realize that you actually need to act differently in the future. You need to do something, whatever it might be. You know, you need to uh, not bonk your brother on the head with your truck, or you need to um, eat differently or 
interact differently with another person. There's an action to take. And the action, there's a reason why you haven't taken it before. You haven't really wanted to do it or you've been afraid to do it. Another kind of thing that I think can sometimes surface with clarity in that final reaching onward step is a kind of reckoning with your own history, maybe with some sorrow in it. You realize, oh, I made a mistake there. Oh, I've got regret or maybe I've got remorse. And maybe what's happening here is that, you know, I've got an issue with the relationship. It's really hard to repair. They, they won't talk to me anymore. You know, there's, there's, some, there's a reckoning. There's an element of reckoning. So with both of those, appropriate action and reckoning with one's past, they're pretty challenging. They're pretty challenging. And then I'm thinking about what are the onward steps that you've seen that help people for each of them, motivating ourselves to do what's good for us and others that we may not want to do. And second, reckoning, coming to terms with some difficult things that we've done ourselves. I love that. The reckoning the reckoning and onward steps. The reckoning would kind of be like the fourth step, the recheck, but you need the prior steps to get you to that point. And the the reckoning is also a sense of acceptance. You know, you may, if like you deal with trauma a lot, as you say, you, you may not ever understand why you that happened like there's a story in the book and it's a real story of a real live child this is someone who contacted me out of the blue long story short they had a child who was abused from the age of three months but she's a stepmom it was her her new husband's well her husband's child from from another marriage and they had protective custody and so think thank goodness for that but the child was showing up with as you can imagine every behavioral, every psychological, every, you know, all those, those categories, everything was crashing and had every label in, in the book and was doing, you know, there was a lot going on. But they got to the point where she didn't know what to do with herself anymore, the parent, the stepmom, because it was becoming so hard. And she was, we were doing research, she learned about the neurocycle, just went and did it on her own. The child watched her. Now, here's an eight-year-old, was watching his mom do something every day that was making her, his stepmom, different and he noticed this is that insight thing and he actually noticed her doing something and then having an action rick she would then seem to be different like before when she maybe got totally frustrated which is understandable considering the enormity of what they were facing with this child this, this child didn't sleep more than three or four hours a night they had to start the bedtime routine at like four in the afternoon they couldn't go anywhere this was seven days a week it was just they had no life the child would wake up every night with nightmares so suddenly she was less reactive. So he was watching her and she didn't even know that he was watching her in this way. And that's where we see the child's insight. So the, he, he saw her sit down and do something on her phone. And then suddenly she got stood up and she, she was different. She spoke differently or she said, come, let's go and do this or let's go for a walk or whatever. But he said to her, what are you doing? You're different, mom. And so she showed him the neurocycle and from the adult version and just adapted it down. Long story short, this child, within, I think it was four days of using the neurocycle, slept through the night for the first time in, in eight years. And when you don't make someone reliant on you as the therapist or as the parent, when you say, hey, this is something I can share with you. This is something that we can do this together. We can work out how can we accept this has happened? What can we do? I can't solve this whole long trauma cycle in this one neurocycle or in one day or in one therapy session. But what can I just do for today? All I can do for today is write maybe, and I'll give you one of the examples of this little child, drew a picture of um, two houses and the one house had black smoke coming out the chimney and the one had all these like pretty things coming out, like hearts and stars. And 
Oh, and that was like the very first act of reach he did. He just drew two pictures and he said that when I go to sleep tonight, instead of having that coming out of my brain, I'm going to have that coming out of my brain. And he told himself that the whole day. He carried this picture around with him all day to school, kept looking at it. And that night he had less nightmares. What if the action is uncomfortable, it's scary? Like, oh, I need to speak more from my heart with my partner. Or, oh, I really have to stop you know, hanging out with my friends and going to sports bars because I just get, I drink too much. Oh, yeah. you know. How do you help somebody relate to that? Yeah. That's going to take the time for it. That's going to take time. So the, that's where you're going to do a little action each day. I'll hang out maybe instead of every night, I'll go once, I'll go for two hours less each night or an hour less. So it's going to be building up over time. That's where the, the cycle of the 60, 60 to 66 days comes in. Because just having that action each day needs to build. It needs to be such a tiny action that each day the action can just build. So very often the active reach will be starting at this level and then it kind of grows and becomes a more panic-based thing that grows over time. And you're pendulating yourself through it. Yeah, yeah and part of what you're exploring in the um, intermediate steps are the, the rewards, the value, the benefits to you and others of, you know, walking, I'll just call it a walking a higher road, choosing to go down a different road. Which will then motivate people, as you know, the anticipation of reward is a way to motivate ourselves and to form a new habit, right? Basically shift out of those old habits into a new one. I'm imagining for kids as well that the the sense of reward in it is very motivating to them because they're concrete and immediate and passionate. And they if it feels good, they're gonna want to do more of it. Yeah. They do, and they love the brain. They love that. They they love that kind of thing. They love the science. They love the the routine of it. The sort of system, having something that I can hang on to, you know. They they love that. One of the things that I would love to leave people with is something very practically that they could do with, say, a six or seven year old kid, somebody in that range, where you want to introduce these ideas to them. You want to start talking about the brain, and you want to really give them a feeling of of empowerment over their own processes, where they can have thoughts and feelings without being those thoughts and feelings. How do you just initially start to talk about that with somebody? Like, what, How would you coach that parent in that initial stage of opening up that conversation with their kid? I would take them into nature, if possible, or just show them if you can't get into a park or a garden or something, get pictures of nature out and look at the different trees and just say that those mm. trees are what it looks like and find the you know trees that are beautiful and and talk about how that you know an experience they're playing with their friends so some kind of experience which was just wonderful and talk about how they first when they first went to the house and then they played this game whatever so that's the roots so you track an experience that's positive and and show how the tree is representative of that so that's what it's like in our brains and then find an ugly looking tree and so that could be maybe some sad thing and maybe you could take yourself as an example and that initiates the discussion of taking them and tracking back through the concept of, so that's what shows up in our brain, but we don't have to live with those trees. We can actually dig around the root, put plant food on and heal the root and regrow the tree. And the, the ugly one gets really small and the big one, healthy one gets nice and big. So it never goes away, but this one's got no power anymore. Mm. So you get empowered over that. And that works really well. That analogy is a great place to start with kids. Thank you so much, Caroline. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Oh, no, thank you. It's great talking with you. I love the way you dived in and just did everything, you know, all the questions. And it's been lovely. I've loved it. Thank you so much. Deep down inside, Forrest and I are both each about seven years old. Oh, I think we all are. <laughs> I am too. I love this as much as the little kids. So thank you.
I think that one of the hardest parts about being human is the presence of thoughts and feelings that we didn't ask for, that we feel like we don't want, that we feel like we don't have a lot of control over, that can appear out of nowhere sometimes and overwhelm us, confuse us, make us feel like we are a prisoner inside of our own minds. And that's why I think that all of the things that we talk about on the podcast related to intervening inside of our own minds are such important tools. All of the neuroplastic things that we talk about, all of the ways that we can can really intervene in the brain. And alongside that, feel more agency, which of course I talk about all the time. It has become a bit of a meme at this point, but hey, there it is. Feel like we have more active influence over those thoughts and feelings, maybe even over the development of the brain as a whole. Today, we talked with Dr. Caroline Leaf about neuroplasticity, really, and her neurocycle technique, which is the way that she frames this active process of engagement with the mind. And particularly, we talked about how we can talk with younger people about this, how we can talk to our children if you're a parent, or to other young kids who might be in your orbit. Because I'm not a parent, but I have had plenty of interactions with younger people where you're sitting on a couch together and you're talking about your emotions, you're talking about those thoughts and feelings, and it is really remarkable how bad we often are at educating kids around what they can do inside of their own minds. Because if you think back yourself to being a child or a younger person, you know, seven, eight years old, and I think of myself at that age, I had all of these thoughts and feelings inside of me that felt so big, like they just happened to me and I became that thought or that feeling. And it's hard for adults sometimes even to feel like they can get a sense of separation from those emotions. So, man, for a child who doesn't have the kind of uh, level of cognitive development that an adult does, that's a really high bar to be able to do that. But in Dr. Leaf's work, what she's found is that kids, for starters, are often far more uh, thoughtful and intuitive and interested in these topics than you might expect. They often have way more capacity than you would expect, and they can even be more emotionally intelligent and more intuitive and frankly, more more embodied in their own nature than many adults are. Dr. Leaf really emphasized the role of empowerment in this process, and there's a line from her book that I really liked. Empowerment is the missing link that gets you from hearing or reading a good idea to implementing it consistently. And isn't that the truth, right? There are so many good ideas, good concepts, good thoughts that people have that we bump into in the course of our lives. Maybe that we share it on this podcast sometime. But there is such a huge gap. And the gap is between acquiring the idea or hearing about it from somebody else and actually being able to implement it in a systemic way. And that's where her neurocycle process comes into the picture. And the neurocycle feels quite spiritually similar to me to a number of techniques and approaches that are taught in cognitive behavioral therapy, where you are noticing your thoughts and feelings in different kinds of ways, you're intervening in those thoughts and feelings, and then you're doing what you can to establish a new framework, to tilt your brain toward a new way of being. We had a bit less time with Dr. Leaf today than we have with most of our guests, and because of that, we had to kind of breeze through some elements of what the neurocycle is and how it does, and I'm going to go through the five steps of it in more detail during this outro and recap for the episode. 
So the first step of the neurocycle is gathering our awareness, and we begin by recognizing and acknowledging our thoughts and emotions without judgment. Taking a moment maybe to become aware of any painful thoughts and feelings that might be causing you distress or influencing your behavior. And you could particularly pay attention to your feelings and physical sensations associated with those thoughts. You could observe how they affect your mood or your overall mental state. And I really liked what Caroline said here about how when you go to an apple orchard, you don't just hold out your hands and have any apple fall into it, right? You deliberately select the apple. And gathering awareness runs along the same lines. We're not just being buffeted by all of our thoughts and feelings. We are going through them. We're cataloging them. We're uh, deliberately putting them into our hands. So the second step is reflecting. And in this step, the person takes some time to explore the root causes, the underlying reasons that that difficult thought or emotion that you identified in the first step might exist. You might ask yourself questions like, why am I feeling this way? Or what triggered these thoughts? And it's really important to be honest and open with yourself, even if you don't share these reflections with other people, to be honest and open with yourself about what's going on inside of you. Then in the third step, and I thought this was really interesting, you write it down. You use writing as a tool for processing your emotions. And there's actually a lot of really interesting research, in particular, I think, on journaling and on the impact that journaling has on our mental health. Then there's some interesting research on the areas of the brain that light up when we actually write things down as opposed to using something like a keyboard. And there is some evidence that this can be a really key way to learn, to integrate information, and to take in new ideas, and also, frankly, to express ourselves. I've had so many moments in my life where I was feeling a kind of way about something, and I just had a really hard time processing it. But I was able to journal, I wrote it down, and it felt like I was taking the emotion out of myself and putting it onto the page. And it was an incredibly useful practice for me. So then the fourth step is recheck, and this is when we start to go back in, take a look at what we've written down, take a look at all the stuff that we've gathered, and go, huh, how do I feel about that? And as you revisit the thoughts that you've had, you can consider them from a more objective perspective. You can consider them with a little bit of separation in between you and the thought. You're widening the distance here between whatever stimulus you received and your response to it. And this can also help us, particularly if we're able to review previous things that we've written down, find some patterns or recurring themes or potential triggers that might contribute to the difficult pattern of thoughts that we're having around a subject. And so we're reconceptualizing, we're applying context, we're breaking down the thought, we're taking a hard look at it and going, hmm, is this the way that I want to be from now on? And that leads to our fifth step, active reach. So the final step of the neurocycle is about actively reconstructing your thought patterns and hopefully building newer, healthier ones, building some healthy trees, as Caroline said. And to maybe borrow some language from CBT here, this is where we are intervening in our stinking thinking and disputing the pathogenic belief, which basically just means that we're looking at the more problematic thoughts and patterns that we have and trying to replace them with more useful ones. And what I want to emphasize here is that we're doing all of this to influence the brain itself. We're trying to influence the process by which the brain develops and changes. 
And so it's great to kind of do what we can in the course of the day, sort of going through haphazardly and intervening with our thoughts when we come up and going, oh, you know, that's probably a little too self-critical for us. You don't have to do that. Or, oh, yeah, that was probably a little bit too reactive. I wanted to respond more there rather than reacting there. Whatever it is that you're doing, like that can be helpful. But this stuff only really changes through the application of deliberate effort over time. And that's when Caroline started talking about things like the 60 days that it typically takes somebody to really install this process, uh, build a new habit, or start to work on a problematic thought or feeling. And for many of the thoughts that we have, it's going to take well over 60 days for us to really start to get some separation from them and to just enter the process understanding that. And hey, maybe if you're talking to a kid about these processes, enter the process with them understanding that, where you don't have an unreasonable expectation for your child's behavior or the behavior of another child. And particularly, you don't have an unreasonable expectation around how quickly that behavior will change. There's this really common pattern that you see with how we interact with kids, where kids are held to an unreasonable expectation, they inevitably fall short of that unreasonable expectation, and then they feel like they're defective. So it's very important to set reasonable expectations for our kids, and it's also important to involve them in this process. How many times has some parent come home from work, had a bad day, and taken it out on their kid? They're upset when they get home. The kid can tell that they're upset. They try to join with the parent. The parent makes them wrong. The kid ends up feeling like crap. But if you're a parent or if you're an uncle or if you're a teacher, you're a whatever, who is capable of taking a moment there and going, oh, wow, actually, I was feeling this way because of this other thing that happened. It's not about you. It's about me. And now I'm going to model for you intervening in my mental process in an active way. What a better way to teach our kids about the world. There were a couple of specific things that Caroline talked about throughout the conversation that stuck out to me, uh, two of them in particular. And the first was how we start to talk to kids about cleaning up our own mental mess. And I really liked the metaphor she used of a garden or a forest where we are trying to grow healthier trees over time, or plant healthier flowers, choose your analogy of choice here. And that kind of conceptual visual model for a kid is probably going to be a lot more effective than something very abstract when we're talking about the mind. Then the second idea is having a dedicated space, as we have for many other activities in a house, for this kind of mental or emotional processing. I love the idea of having an emotion wall or an emotion corner, or hey, this is the emotion chair, and we sit in the emotion chair when we interact with our own brains. Whatever it is that's useful for you, whatever it is that's accessible to you or accessible inside of the environments that you're moving through, I can just imagine an educator, a teacher, working in that kind of environment and having a corner of the classroom devoted to that kind of an activity. And there are going to be some settings where it's probably unrealistic to do that consistently. But at the very least, we can have some kind of a procedure where we start to teach younger people that they have thoughts and feelings rather than being those thoughts and feelings, where they're the person who gets to control how they think and how they feel, because we can't control what happens to us, but we can influence our responses to it. And we can do what's available to us which isn't always going to be perfect. It's often going to be constrained by situation, constrained by circumstance, constrained by the resources that are available inside of our particular and unique environment. 
But most people, most of the time, can do something to get some separation between their true selves and the thoughts and feelings that arise inside of the mind. And just like any other form of learning, the earlier we start teaching it, the more it's going to stick. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Again, Dr. Leaf's new book is How to Help Your Child Clean Up Their Mental Mess. So I've included all of the links to that in the description of today's podcast episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast for a while and would like to support us, the best way to do that is simply by subscribing. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a few dollars a month, you could support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. Things like detailed show notes, transcripts of the episodes, and ad-free versions of the episodes. So until next time, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.